Hello. Welcome back. Glad to see you guys. I know. Yes. So please go ahead and click in whenever you are ready. And you know this is a very momentous day in our class. You know why? Hmm? It's even a little bit past the halfway point. It's a good guess. Look at all the calendar I'm able to get on our calendar slide. Look at where it ends. It's everything else for the whole semester. So, we have made it through. So what do we have? We have this week, then one, two, three, four and a half more weeks and we're done. Which is both terrifying and brilliant. Now, I will miss you guys when we're all done. Don't get me wrong. It's not like I want to. But you know, summer is good. Okay. And you know also, oh, my little dude isn't, isn't making its laser point. See how the, the topics in that right column we're just really all out of sync with? That is, we're behind. So I've been covering things, I think, at a pace that's youthful for getting assignments done, but it's behind the pace I thought we might be able to go this semester. It's totally my fault. It's not you guys. What I'm going to do for the, this last set of weeks this semester is make some adjustments to the, the content we're covering. This will not affect your reading assignments, and it will not affect any assignment deadlines. Um, but what I'm going to do is extract some of the material from the next few weeks that students usually find super boring and try to save time for material that students generally find interesting and useful. So actually, let me close the opening poll and get you to uh, give me your opinion. So there are, there are these uh, topics left. There's language and consciousness, language and the brain. Let's assign that to number one. I'm gonna, what I'm going to do is assign all these topics to numbers and ask you to click in with what is your favorite one that we should not skip or reduce. And then we'll see. Um, who's most excited about what. So number one gets assigned to language and the brain, language and consciousness. If that is your super favorite, you're going to vote one. Two, non-human animals and language. If that is your super favorite, vote two. Three, history of human languages. If that is your super favorite, vote three. Four, Local languages, if that is your super favorite, vote four. And for uh, the cursing lecture, we have to have a lecture on cursing, but I'll go ahead and assign it to uh, number five. 
This is the talking dirty in all languages lecture. If that's your super favorite, vote five. So I'm going to open the poll and go back through the numbers. Number one means you really, really want to get something about brains, language and consciousness, language and the brains. Number two, it's your top priority to learn about non-human animals and language. Number three, it's your top priority to learn about what we know about where languages, human languages, ultimately started and their history. Uh, four, local languages, you want to know more about the, the heritage languages of this area, which of course would include some English, some Spanish, but also a lot of languages that have been here a lot longer than any of those. And five is your talking dirty lecture. So. Uh, I'll give you another five, four, three, maybe we're all done, two, one, let's see, oh. <laughs> you guys, <laughs> I just advanced and I shouldn't have advanced, there we go, um, okay. So, I'm, I'm hearing that it's your interest in this part that is perhaps less salient than others. So what I'll do is I'll try to trim from this most, then this, uh, and we'll try to keep these three guys. This one, you can't have a course in linguistics without discussing those bad words. You just can't. So I'm with you. I'm on board. Thank you very much for that. What you have due next is uh, a little homework, homework four. The format and the process for doing homework four ought to be just very familiar to you. This is another one where you're going to the literature and you're finding an article from a scientific journal. This time your article is going to discuss politeness, or respect speech, or you can use the keyword honorification, honorification, in some naturally occurring human language. And the reason I'm having you look for that information is because your field notebook four is going to be about, at long last, how your speakers actually get to use this beautiful language that you have discovered. That is. It's about pragmatics, the use of language in real contexts. And in particular, I want you to focus on how your speakers convey politeness, respect, honorification among each other um, linguistically. Okay? So that's homework four. You'll go find an article on politeness, respect, speech, or honorification. Um, and you'll do sort of the same steps you did with the homework three, except this time on a different topic. Does that make sense? So that's due to the homework four Dropbox uh, this Friday. And then you have next Friday just a reading quiz, which is open now. You could be working on it anytime you wanted. Um, and your field notebook four comes in on the 13th. When you have completed field notebook four, you will have a complete draft of your term paper for this class. So your term paper for this class, also known as the field report due April the 27th, that 
is a revise and resubmit of one paper that's built of your field notebooks one, two, three, and four. So our primary grading criteria for your field report is, you know how we've given you comments on your field notebooks one, two, three, and four? You should do those things we said you should do. That's what we're looking for in the field report. We're looking for one paper that fixes all the mistakes and is beautiful by doing so. But there's no new information you need to write for, for the field report. I also wanted to point out to you that the last three Fridays are reserved in your discussion section classes for presentations about your language. The idea is, Imagine a world in which you were actually doing this work. You would write the work up for publication in a scientific journal. That's what you're doing in your field report. And you would absolutely take it to conferences and give talks about it. That's what the conference talk is. So the conference talk is probably relatively short. You're going to be selecting really cool facts about your language that you want to share with your, um, with your colleagues. You should know that just as in actual scientific conferences, where it's the people who do um, linguistic work are typically not the world's most dynamic public speakers. We're in, this isn't a public speaking class. We're not having you give an oral presentation so that we can judge you on your presentation style. The point of the presentation is to share your work with others. So, you do well on your conference talk by being prepared and having something interesting to say. We don't care if you say um a lot. We don't care if you have a hard time keeping eye contact with your audience. We're not, right, we're just about sharing your work. And your section instructor will tell you more about how your section is going to plan and execute the conference talks. This assignment is really, really enrollment sensitive. So we've got three weeks, and however many students are participating in your section, we have to have time for everybody to give their talk in three class periods. So the, the maximum length of talks is going to be different. If you're in a big section, it'll be shorter than if you're in a little bitty section. <laughs> and those of you who are in the big section are going, woohoo, finally, there's an, there's an advantage to being in the big section. Actually, it kind of is a drag. So it would be fun. Everybody should, in real scientific conferences, the shortest presentation you'll give is what, 15 and 20 minutes. Um, if you're really good and big and shiny, they'll give you an hour. It would be great to give everyone an hour. And I actually, I think it would be awesome to give everybody time right up here. But, yeah. Okay, so, so it's going to be even more important than before that you be in attendance for your section meetings these last three weeks. If you do not show up for your section meeting on one of these last three weeks, that means that you are dissing your colleagues. That is, that is bad. So be prepared to do everything you can do to be there and be supportive of the others in your class, giving a presentation to an audience of everybody else who has to give their presentation that day is horrible. 
So we want we want you to be there. Okay. Okay. So that's that's like that. That's it. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> so what have we talked about before? This is going to ever, oh, my automatic clicker is dead. The battery doesn't work. I'm going to have to click manually. All right. Last time we met, we talked about this thing called grammatical number. Who can give me an idea of the possible categories of grammatical number that you might have had in your language? Anybody shout out anything. Singular, plural, dual, focal, excellent, distributive, multiple plural, there's a bajillion. There's a lot of categories of number, which is literally good, right? Grammatical person, what were the persons? First, second, third, some guy, four, fifth, right, maybe, good, good, good. The tenses? Present, past, future. Do you know, we're, we're very attuned to going future, you point that way, and past, you point that way, but there are communities in which future, you point that way, and past, you point that way, and the logic, Aymara is one of these, a Peruvian language. The logic of that is, well, can you guess? You, <laughs> you, you don't know what's coming in the future, you can't see it. But you can tell what, isn't that lovely? Okay, so tense, very good. Directionality, what was directionality? That's where you have a grammatical category that marks location or direction of motion verbs. What was the next category after directionality? Do you remember? Evidentiality, that's where you have to say how you know the thing that you know, right? And we talked about grammatical gender, that's where every noun in the language sorts into some number of more or less arbitrary categories, okay? Now, how do I expect you to understand these concepts uh, outside of what you're doing on your field report? You just wrestled with at least well, at least three of these, because we also had case as a possibility. You've wrestled with these in your field report, so, so I know you're going to learn how to manipulate them. On the second exam, I would feel very comfortable giving you guys an example of data from some unknown, perhaps made-up language, with the three-line gloss. Might be oh my god. And asking you which category it belongs in. Okay? So what I want you to be able to do is look at the meanings that are encoded in the three-line gloss and associate those different kinds of meanings with these different categories. So if something is glossed, um, first-hand observation, what category does it probably belong to? Evidentiality. Right. What if something is glossed as towards the river? Directionality. Good. What if something is glossed as inanimate? Gender. Very good. Or masculine. That's masculine or feminine are the more 
um, difficult terms for the gender categories. Something's glossed as third. You got it. So you'll be able to look at examples and recognize these guys, I hope. Do you guys remember the distinction we made between gender and classification? What was the difference? Gender, how many categories do you have? A poquel number, a few, right? Two or sometimes three. Classification systems, you can have lots in the tens, maybe. Very good. Otherwise, they're basically the same kind of thing. <clears throat> These are sentence trees. Do they frighten you? No. They don't. These are very basic sentence trees that I think you should be able to look at and, and understand what they're saying. Yeah? We've got sentences. That's what the S stands for. Come on. Ah. Oh. So we've got sentences. That's what the S stands for. What does NP stand for? Noun phrase. Which noun phrase is this one in each of these sentences? The panda, and that is functioning as the subject. Right. What does VP stand for? Verb phrase. And verb phrase is also known as the Predicate, correct. Now I want you to think back on your experience of reading chapters 5 and 5a in the manuscripts. For field notebook 4, we're going to ask you to tell how your speakers form questions. So the ability to make inquiries of each other is one of the uses that all languages serve. All languages have some means to distinguish statements from questions. The manuscript in 5A goes very systematically through the strategies that English uses grammatically to ask different kinds of questions. So I'm going to ask you to pay special attention to that chapter when you're building your question formation strategies for field number four. And I wanted you to vote. On a scale of one to nine, where one is, oh my goodness, I see trees like this and I panic and I don't know what they mean, to nine, which says, oh, these trees are too simple, and they're telling me something that I knew a thousand years ago, I need more complicated trees. Let me know where you stand with respect to sentence trees in the next five. Four. Three, two, one, 107. So someone on the instructional team, let's take a head count. See if we've got 107 people in the room. Thank you. All right. OK. <laughs> so what I see here is a curve tending towards you're pretty okay at least with the simple trees. Yeah, a few of you are really, really messed up by the trees. You voted a one. Here's what I want to say to try to reassure you. We will never ask you to draw a sentence tree in this class. We will present you with sentence trees and ask that you understand certain key properties that they have. 
Okay, so to the extent you can work through the materials in chapters 5 and 5A, to be at least that comfortable with them, that will be useful. For those of you who voted 9, you totally need to take Linguistics 201 next so that you can qualify for Linguistics 300 syntax later. And you will find the most delicious trees in the world. These trees just show us that each sentence is comprised of a subject and a predicate, a noun phrase and a verb phrase. And the one on the left, what kind of a sentence is that? It's a simple intransitive sentence. How about the one on the right? Simple transitive sentence. Very, very good. You've got it. All right. So as I said, the S at the top just stands for sentence. These are declarative sentences. What does that mean? They say something. They are neither questions nor are they commands. So we can think of sentences and languages of the world as coming in at least three flavors. We have declaratives. Those are the ones that you've been taught to end in a period. We have questions. Those are the ones you've been taught to end in a question mark. And then we have commands. Those are the ones that you may have been taught in school to end in an exclamation point, even though maybe you don't. All right. So, so what I want to focus on today is the distinction between declaratives, statements, and interrogatives, questions, in English. So let's do that. Right, right, right. OK. Let's remind ourselves of the principle of compositionality, because when we when we go about interpreting the literal meaning of any sentence, linguists claim that that interpretation is always subject to the principle of compositionality, which says the meaning of a complex expression is determined by, you have had this back at morphology, remember? The meanings of its parts and they're a hierarchical relationship to each other. That means there's something, a morphine, in the tree that gives you the meaning, or else there's geometry. There's, there's constituency that gives you the meaning. Those are the two parts. Very, very important to keep this in mind as we go forward. This is, this is the reason that linguists draw trees, because we think trees are actually part of the meanings of expressions. Okay. That means everything, including the panda, is in the tree. All right. So we have our declaratives. And we think, that is, linguists think, that interrogatives, questions, and declaratives are really closely associated with each other structurally. Um, and we think that you can in any language, take something that looks like a declarative and make it into something that looks like one of two kinds of questions. First kind of question, the yes-no question. What do you think is the hallmark of a yes-no question? The answer will be either yes or no. We'll start with those. The other kind of question that you might be able to form is a content question. 
Content questions are the ones that use your question words. The words like what, who, where, when, why. You guys all have at least one question word from your field notebook three. All right. Now, if these are interrogatives, ah, I'm sorry. If these are declaratives, I can say the panda is eating declarative. I can also say the panda is eating bamboo. Right? How about if I say the panda is eating? Now it's an interrogative, right? The panda is eating bamboo? <laughs> Question. So here's one of the fundamental reasons that linguists believe declarative structures and interrogative structures are the same is because in many languages, you can change one to the other just by virtue of your intonation. Now, I've said that that's true in many languages. It's certainly true in English. It is not true in every language that you can do that. Nor is the particular intonation contour the same in all languages that do it. So what's the property of the intonation contour of English that tells you, I'm an interrogative? I should do this your way. Here's what the pitch that we could do the interrogative dance, right? Here's the pitch. As opposed to declarative, here's the pitch. So there's a rising pitch at the end of an interrogative in English. We do find languages where the interrogative, the question form, is the one with the falling pitch. So you can have representative pitches corresponding to interrogative versus declarative. In some languages. Go ahead, Richard. Isn't there like a general theory? Because you can, you can, if I leave you go to Panda eating bamboo, by going at the end, then it's interactive, right? You, you went up. It's bamboo. Bamboo. You hear that? Yeah. And it's crucially for English at the end of the sentence that you do that. Now, when I say the panda eats pamba, isn't the word of English. The panda a bamboo. I make it into a question, and I would argue that that's a yes/no question. Would you agree? Yes. Yes. Excellent. So, so here's what linguists propose in order to, in order to maintain the insight that declaratives and interrogatives are basically formed on similar structures, but also that the, the principle of compositionality is true. Here's what we say. This might sound crazy to you, but we've got good reason to say it. We think that there are, in every sentence, extra markers in there that you might not hear as words or morphemes, but they're there in the meaning. <coughs> so I've put in square brackets here, and in italic type, the word, the, the abbreviation INT, that's meant to stand for interrogative. I could have written question mark instead. What I intend that to show is that if you're going to ask a question, I think you have something in the structure of your sentence that indicates it's a question. That's part of the meaning of the sentence. I've called this thing communicative intent. 
You can call it whatever you want as long as it starts with a C, the technical abbreviation for this position. In any syntactic tree is C, and it makes a CP communicative intent phrase. In real life syntax, they call it a complementizer phase, but we, we take 201 and then we don't know why. So here's what we think might be what's really in your head when you make an interrogative. We think you have the intent, the communicative intent, question, and then you have the sentence with all of its structure uh, that you intend to say. And then you have some rules of pronunciation. So there's a rule for pronouncing yes-no questions in English that says, one of the things you can do, speaker, if you have a structure like this, because you want to make a question, is you can pronounce the thing with rising intonation. The rising, the highest pitch is going to actually show up over here. But you can think of that as sort of covering the whole sentence. Okay. I know that's a weird and uh, abstract notion. But if you'll sort of ride the wave with me, I hope I'll be able to motivate it a little bit better. Okay. Now, if we have a statement, then we assume we know we're making a statement. That's part of the meaning of the utterance, too. And in that case, my communicative intent will be declarative, not interrogative. So imagine we have this exciting rule of pronunciation for English, and then we have a tree like this with declarative. Is it going to be a yes-no question? No. Is the yes-no question rule going to apply? No. Why not? There is no interrogative marker in the structure. Okay. Okay. So we think that declaratives and interrogatives both come, each one of them with some communicative intent. Yes, ma'am? Uh, why did we decide that the intent comes before this? Good question. Because doesn't it seem like maybe it should go over here? I know. And there's actually good reason in English to put it on this side some of the time and on that side some of the time. So the nice thing about trees is that they say the meanings of the complex expression are determined by the things, the pieces, and their hierarchical relationship, crucially not their linear order. So if we flip the tree around, dude, you got it. It's a smart observation to make about English. In English, we have evidence that sometimes this guy's over here, but sometimes he's over here do you remember in, in part 5a, of course you remember it like it was yesterday, because it changed your life to read the chapter on. Uh, okay. We have, there's a strategy for forming yes-no questions in English. Perhaps the most stereotypical form comes in Canadian English, where you, you might get rising intonation, but you also get a little special word, a. And that word comes at the end of the sentence. Okay. I often use yes as my question particle. I'll say to you, this makes sense, yes. 
or no, or a, or huh. Then that would be part of the order. Then, then we'd want to say this guy is in the other order. Yeah. That is actually flipped. Would you need to add the C part there if you could just add it as a word? So the question is, would you need to add this whole CP if this thing were actually pronounced? In fact, you would, and you would even more want to add it for sure because you hear something in this position. It's just that it's on the other side. I put these guys with, with this linear order because for the next step of yes-no formation process, it needs to be in that, on that side. Yes? Okay. If you added the word, you said the pen Z is A. Yes. When you, when you, when you go from the sense character, Yes, but the word is marking your communicative intent. So it would come from the sentence. So it would come from the communicative intent phrase. I'll give you, there are some pictures of this in 5A, um, but I can give you some more if it would be helpful. It's useful, I think, to think of these guys as coat hangers on strings. You can spin. <laughs> each one, and then it helps you see what the hierarchical order is and how that separates from the linear order. Okay, Cassandra. Could it also be comes before because you have to like think oh. there, but when you say A at the end, you can like halfway through your sentence be like, oh, I want to ask this. Such a smart question. Could it be because at the beginning of the whole sentence you know? Well, the beauty of the hierarchical structure is that from the top of the whole sentence you know, even if you pronounce the thing later rather than earlier. So we do. Here's the thing about question particles in all human languages. If you've got one, it overwhelmingly occurs either first thing in the sentence or at the very end of the sentence. It doesn't appear in the middle. So it seems like whatever it is, it's something that's sort of, it's like a wrapper around the sentence. Okay, very good questions and excellent uh, intuitions also. Let's go back to our interrogatives because, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna just get rid of one of those so we can see one tree at a time. There is another way to make yes, no questions in English, right? So I could say, the panda is eating bamboo, intonation only. I could say, the panda is eating bamboo, eh? Question particle. But there's another way I could do it. What would I say? Is the panda eating bamboo? Yes, of course he is. He's a panda. That's what they eat. But also, <gasps> let me go back. So imagine we start out with this structure in our head. It's a simple declarative structure plus a marker that says, make me into a question. That's interrogative. Then imagine we have the ability in our brains to move stuff around. The, the idea that we have the ability in our brains to put words in a particular structure first and then do other stuff to them and move them and then pronounce them is a really radical idea about linguistic ability, but it seems to be very much true. So think about things like passive versus active sentences in English. You can say the student studied for the exam. You can say the exam was studied for. 
by the student. You can rearrange things, right? The yoga sentences. Uh, study for the exam, student will. You can, you can move things about. So we think that when you make a yes-no question in English of this, this now it's the third type. So we had intonation only, that question particle. This is, I'll call it syntactic movement. We think that what you do is you extract a particular element from the declarative sentence and you ship it upstairs so that it becomes the thing that sort of announces you've got a question in an interrogative structure. Notice that I left a little red T down here in the position where the is came from. That T is not a thing I think you pronounce. You don't pronounce it. It's just a little, like a little placeholder, like a bookmark. We think that you actually store in your brain when you do make a question via syntactic movement. Um, and then the bookmark is just a place marker showing you where the word started out before you moved it. And that's called trace. I don't know why they called it trace. They call it trace of movement. So it's conventionally indicated by a little t. Doesn't mean I think you're going to say a phoneme t there. In fact, I'm sure you won't. You will say, is the panda eating bamboo? You won't say, is the panda teething? No. Go ahead. Is the verb phrase still the same, even if the verb is verb? So is the verb phrase still the same? On hypothesis, yes. Nothing has changed about the tree. We've just taken the, the leaves and moved them. Hmm. Very strange. All right. So I started out with question rule two being move the words about, right? But really what I think is the rule you have in your brain for forming yes-no questions by syntactic movement in English, this is it. Remember how we asked you to, to use an auxiliary verb to have an auxiliary verb in your table? Because auxiliary verbs can move to make questions sometimes that can't be in English. So it's crucially the auxiliary verb that moves. And, and you see how it's moving around the subject? So in the declarative, we have the order subject, auxiliary, main verb. But in the yes, no question, we have auxiliary, subject, yeah, main verb. OK, so people call this movement uh, subject auxiliary inversion. Yes? So if you have a question, like the sentence, the panda eats, and uh, the question is the panda eating, does oh. that change your verb phrase? So Cassandra's asking about uh, sentences, base sentences that don't have auxiliaries. We'll get there. We'll get there. So let's, for the moment, take another example of a sentence that clearly has an auxiliary verb in it. The panda will eat bamboo. How do you make that yes-no question? Will the panda eat panda? Panda eat bamboo. <laughs> Same thing. 
Okay. So we can use this process to actually diagnose what words count as auxiliaries in English. That's handy. We can also use this process to diagnose what constituent of the sentence is a subject. Because we know the auxiliary is going to start out after the subject and it's going to move before the subject. So whatever the auxiliary circumnavigates, it's a subject. Now, what I want you to do is give me the moved version. So if the base order of the sentence is the panda has eaten bamboo, yes, no question that guy? Right? The panda might eat bamboo. Right? Should the pamba, pamba, panda have eaten bamboo? Right? So in English, we can get sentences that are awfully complex in terms of the number of different auxiliary verbs there are. But we can always figure out what the first auxiliary verb is because it is the one that's going to move. And see how it leaves everybody else right where they were. Nice. Now, this is, this is Cassandra's question. So if the base sentence is, the panda ate bamboo, what do we get when we yes, no question that guy? Thank you, Kira. You say, did the panda eat bamboo? Okay. Now, some of you might have been tempted to say something like, has the panda eaten bamboo? We don't, we don't want to add more structure. But we can get something out of a sentence like that. <laughs> that gets pronounced, did the panda eat bamboo? In order to explain how that happens, I want you to think about what it means, this word ate. If you had to three-line gloss the word ate, what would you put? Eat dot past, right? Excellent. So what I'm going to claim is that when you have a tensed verb in English, you actually have the tense and the verb. And in principle, those are distinct morphemes, right? In a verb like eight, you squish them together and you get, you get a portmanteau. Now, let's see what happens if we subject auxiliary invert this guy. We can just move the pastness up to the same place that the is went, right? Or the could or the might. Okay. How do you pronounce past tense if it's not going to appear on a main verb? Let me ask you a different way. What does the word did mean? Something happened in the past. What happened? We got no clue. Because the verb did doesn't tell you anything about what the verb was. It just tells you when it happened. That means that we can say English speakers know another rule of, oh, I'm sorry, another rule of pronunciation. The rule of pronunciation we know is that if we have tense 
in a position in the tree where it's not near a verb, we can pronounce it. We do it by using forms of the verb to do. So if this were a present tense sentence, the panda eats bamboo, what would we say? Does the panda eat bamboo? If it's a future tense sentence, we have always the auxiliary will, so we can always move that. Right? So there's no future tense form of do. We've got do or did or does if it's a second person. Right? We can you get the agreement on that guy. But we we pronounce it when we have to move something in order to do our subject auxiliary inversion. So it might be actually more accurate to refer to this process as subject tense inversion. And if you go back to the other examples that we did before, I think you'll find that it is the case that tense in English shows up on the first auxiliary after the subject. Weirdly, it seems to. Okay. Which leads us to our second type of question formation process. So we've done yes-no questions, right? In your language, you'll need a way to make yes-no questions. You can have a language that does it by intonation only. That's fine. You can have a language that does it by putting a question particle, like A. You can have a language that does it by syntactic movement, like subject, auxiliary, and virgin. Up to you which one you want. Pick one. Okay. And that's going to be for your yes-no question. You also are going to need to say how your speakers make content questions. So let me ask you this. This sentence up here is it's a question form. It's an interrogative. It's, it's, you would, how would you say that sentence in real life? What? The dog ate what? This is a kind of content question formation we tend to use in English when we're shocked or surprised by the thing that they were asking about. Right. Yes, yeah, so the exclamation point added. How many people's dogs have eaten their couches? Yes, so you know. When you come home and your dog has eaten your couch, you might say, the dog ate what? Let's think about how that works. Well, in this case, we've got a simple declarative structure. The dog before eat. <laughs> the sofa or the couch, depending on your dialect. To make this guy into a content question, there's a new step we have to add that we haven't done in yes-no questions. And that step is we have to take some part of the declarative and swap it out for a question word. So I could ask, who ate the sofa, right? And then I'd use the word who here to substitute for the dog. But I want to do the example of the question where we, we just had, the dog ate what? I'll just, we just take one of our question words and stick it into the tree in the spot that the answer to the question would otherwise have been. Does that make sense? 
A question word is a placeholder for some information that you didn't have or you can't believe or you need to ask after. Okay. Next. We can just say this sentence like this in English. And that makes a content question of a form that we talk about in 5A as a, an echo question. An echo question. So if somebody says, I just went to the doctor and he found blah, 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 blah. The doctor found what? The doctor found what? We can insert our question word and just leave it there, put our question intonation on that sucker, and we've got a nice content question in English. But we can also do some movement. So you guys know what's going to happen, right? Yeah. Let's, let's just show it. So we, get a, uh, we do our subject tense inversion, our subject auxiliary inversion. And then uh, we have to do more stuff. Because the question word, what? ends up at the beginning, right? Watch what happens. So we just subject auxiliary inverted. I don't know what to call this constituent. Something bigger than just a plain communicative phrase. And we can say, what did the dog eat? Now we have two traces of movement. One of them corresponding to where the tense started, and the other one corresponding to where the, the question word started. Now, here's the thing that should comfort you. Fewer than half of the languages in the world do this kind of movement. The others just leave the content question where it was. So if you speak Japanese, you do not have to do content question movement. If you speak Navajo, you do not have to do content question word movement. In your language that you are documenting, you should think about whether your speakers move the, con the question word up to the front of the sentence or not. And I will tell you that when that word moves, this guy, it either moves to sentence initial position, like in English, or in rare cases, it moves to sentence final possession, never in the middle. All right. I want you to puzzle over these things between now and Wednesday. And we'll talk more on Wednesday about how we might actually use these guys to do stuff communicatively.